HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Ball Factory, a Japanese eatery and coffee shop at 95 Montrose Avenue in East Williamsburg. Learn more at brooklynballfactory.com. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you stories about how Gen Z is different from their millennial predecessors through the lens of food. My knowledge of alcohol didn't really come from like Bud Light commercials or like Project X. Yeah, and that's my gripe with the platform as well, is that all these DIY videos, cooking videos, they're 20 seconds. What's one food item from your childhood that you wish you could have today? Dunkaroos, because they don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Although, the Dunkaroos Twitter was activated again a year ago, so it's only a matter of time. They've tweeted a couple times, it's pretty hype. Listen to Meet in 3, HRN's food news and storytelling roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Japanese. I'm your host, Aki Katema, food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We normally broadcast live from our studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, but our studio is currently closed due to the coronavirus outbreak. So we are recording this episode remotely uh, from my apartment in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And I hope everyone is safe and well. So this show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my good guests. And my guest today is Jeremy Hunter, who is the founding director of the Executive Mind Leadership Institute at Peter F. Drucker Graduate School of Management. And <laughs> it's long. Um, and Jeremy teaches corporate executives how to examine their lives because he thinks that you cannot manage people without managing yourself first. And you may have heard of the concept of a flow state or being in the zone or zen state, and his approach is based on that. And I got to know Jeremy through a very inspiring YouTube video, YouTube video hosted by the Japan Society's president and CEO, Joshua Walker, in New York. In that video, Jeremy explained how he conquered an incredibly challenging experience, it's really <laughs> of survival physically, and which we are going to talk about, and how he uses his learning from the experience to empower others. But why Jeremy on Japan Eats? Because his mindset and the concept of flow are deeply related to Japanese culture, and he's half Japanese too. Also, his family runs a traditional food business in Japan. So today we'll discuss Jeremy's truly inspiring personal story that made him who he is now, the concept of a flow state, and Jeremy's 86-year-old father-in-law's legendary yakitori restaurant in Japan, and much, much more. But uh, quickly, wait before we start, Japanese is available on the Heritage Video Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify, and subscribe to Japanese. And please write my review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with Jeremy Hunter. Hi, Jeremy. Welcome. Hi, Akiko. Thank you. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I'm excited to have you here. It was the first time <laughs> I, I saw in the, you know, the 
to YouTube, I thought I really have to get on the show to share you with everybody who's listening to Japanese. <laughs> so. Well, you know, I have to say, you know, what your Japan eats is such an amazing treasury of knowledge and wisdom. And I think you're now in the 200th episode or something like that. And uh, it, it's so valuable to have this, this kind of knowledge so accessible to the world. So, you know, what you're doing is a really wonderful thing. And I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. And the, the, it means the world to me. Thank you, Jeremy. <laughs> really. Um, so, I mean, let's talk about your amazing life. Uh, so where are <laughs> you from and what did you eat when you grew up? Actually, I grew up in small town Ohio, Mansfield, Ohio, which is about halfway between Cleveland and Columbus. As as you mentioned, my my mother's Japanese. Uh, she was born in Manchuria, actually. And uh, what did I eat up eat growing up? I somehow my mother, after she married my father, mastered the canon of Middle American food, and so you know I. And thinking about this question, I, I remember distinctly this dish she would make, which was like a, a hamburger patty on top of mashed potatoes mixed with mashed carrots, all covered with this like Velveeta cheese sauce flecked with, <laughs> <laughs> flecked with uh, green peas. And I thought, man, I haven't eaten that in maybe 45 years. And, I, and I'm going to, so I'm making it for my son this week. So we would eat. <laughs> We would eat things like that, and then we would eat, you know, handmade gyoza with with gyoza skin that she made herself, you know. And uh, so, in between those range of things was what I ate growing up. And mm. uh, and I have to say that <clears throat> our dinner table now is is kind of this weird postmodern combination of things that seemingly don't really go together. You'll have like tonjiru, which is a, like a Japanese pork stew next to lasagna. <laughs> and that, that's, that's how we eat wow. <laughs> in this house. Yeah. Okay. So, wow. Yeah. So that's the full range. That's the um, full range. Right. <laughs> so, but it's, it's interesting. So you were, and I also heard you are grand, great grandson, uh, you are great grandson of a sumo wrestler. So. Right. My great grandfather was indeed a sumo wrestler, which my mother didn't bother telling me about until I was like in my forties. But uh, he was a very gregarious fellow, from what I understand. <laughs> well, shall I ask you a little more about him? He was like traveling, like very traveling up and down, traveling through the country, and it's probably a very high probability I have relatives who we don't know about. <laughs> <laughs> So my next book is uh, Your Family History. That would be really yes. wonderful. This. So, all right. So as I said at the beginning, uh, I got to know you for your through the YouTube video made by Japan Side in New York, and mm. so and also I watched your wonderful TED Talk about mindset and how to live your life to the fullest. And I'll put the link to the video on TED Talk uh, on the show page. Okay. But uh, yeah, so for listeners who have not seen them, could you tell tell us the very sure. difficult ex well. experience? <laughs> you know, I was 20 years old and uh, I, uh, I went and got my, I was just finishing my second year of college and there was a health fair on campus and I thought, oh, what the heck? And so I got my blood pressure checked, and as, as I'm watching the nurse's face as she's looking at my blood pressure, I see her eyebrows go up, and I thought, oh, God, when a, when a, when a nurse's eyebrows go up really fast, <laughs> that's not a good <laughs> sign. <laughs> and uh, in any case, six weeks later, I found myself at Cleveland Clinic being diagnosed with, uh, with an autoimmune disease that is incurable, and at that point, it, it was thought to be terminal. Um, so the, the prognosis was 90% chance of mortality within five years. And uh, even even now, the disease is not curable. And uh, But for whatever reason, I I can remember going with my father to the hospital, and we're walking out, and I, and I looked at him, and I said, you know, Dad, I, I guess 90% uh, is good news, uh, because somebody's got to be in the 10%. And, uh, and I decided that that was going to be me. And I, there was, because, you know, science really didn't have an answer to this. In fact, the treatments were all worse than the disease. <laughs> so, um, so I, uh, I decided that maybe I could just 
maybe I could make it into a, a spiritual problem. And I had this very naive idea that, oh, maybe if I meditated, a miracle would happen and, and I would keep on living. And uh, uh, I went back to school. I was an East Asian studies major at uh, a school named Wittenberg University, which is in Southern Ohio, which was very well known for, it had one of the first Asian studies programs in America. And I went to talk with my professor, Eugene Swanger, who is taught for many years at the State Department and still my friend many years later, 30 years later. And he uh, reached into his desk and and he pulled out this book called The Three Pillars of Zen by Philip Kaplow, which was the first book in English to teach Westerners how to do Zen. And uh, and he said, here, read, read this and everything's going to be okay. And uh, And so I did. <laughs> I read that book and, and it, it gave me, you know, gives, you know, when I talk to American audiences, it's really important to know that, you know, in Japan, um, Zen didn't come from California and, uh, it was the warrior's practice. And I think that it was very attractive to the warrior class in medieval Japan because it helped train your mind to have this kind of intense focus in situations that were that were potentially mortal threats right because you're you're fighting for a living and and I thought oh you know as a 20 year old I thought this this is useful right and I have to make my way in the world and and what what it did was to give me the skill to be able to manage all the things that were happening in my mind you know you're 20 years old and suddenly you're coming face to face with your mortality and of course there's going to be anger and rage and anxiety and and all of that and in the midst of that you know you still have to have the you still have to make a life for yourself and how one of my axioms is that attention needs somewhere good to go and you know how you use your attention is really what your life becomes and so it helped me to point my attention in in kind of growth oriented directions mm. and and the thing is, a, you know, um, a miracle did happen, <laughs> and I, I ended up living another 17 years after that, actually. And, uh, but that was, you know, I went on a whole journey of, of exploration of contemplative practices through Asia and, and the United States and, and learned how to kind of work with all the stuff that was happening inside. And, well, you uh, said, you know, the, that 90%, 10% thing, you said you decided to be in 10%. So that decision and intention led you to be in Zen, you know, study Zen. So I, like the decision sounds like a very important first step. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a great point. You know, years later, I, I had a student who had, uh, exactly the same disease and, uh, but the the thing was that he worked for an insurance company, and so he looked up the actuarial tables, right, which are all like the mortality rates. And and I can remember sitting in my office, and and you know, he was shaking. He said, "You know, the mortality rate's ninety percent." And and I said, "Yeah, that you have to see that as good news, and because somebody's got to be in the ten percent." And you know, and unfortunately, I don't think he could make that move. Um, mm. And so. It really is about a lot of life is about how do you manage your fear and which is something we never teach you how to do in school. And I, I think that understanding what fear is and, you know, not trying to push it away, but also understand that that you can you can learn how to work with it. And when you learn how to work with it, it, it can transform your life. Then you're then you're not limited by your fear. Interesting. And, and, and that's a lot of what I do in my own work. Um, right. Well, by the way, the fear, I mean, my, me personally, I have a lot of fear. And somebody said, all the good stuff is beyond fear. Like, whoa, so if you <laughs> overcome all the fears, everything is good things is waiting for me. So that's like, I think we are, most of us are fear driven in the modern life. And it's important to remember that, I think. Yeah, at some point, I think uh, somebody should interview you because you you also have a very interesting life story. I nominate, uh, I, I offer to interview you for your own show one day because okay. I, I think your life story is really 
quite interesting as well. So okay, so we turn the table. Are you going to be the host? Okay. Yes, yeah. Well, uh, happy to be the guest host on Japan Heats one day. Okay, let's do it. Yes. Um, all right. So just so so you know,、um, you are such an amazing, energetic person now. So what happened to turn you know for direction of your life after the diagnosis? Well, yeah. <laughs> the、um, I. I ended up. Well, I ended up going to grad school to kind of study. You know what? What was the what was the meaning of life? I mean, this is a totally. In retrospect, it was、uh, kind of a dumb decision. But you know, I、uh, I I wanted to know what what a good life was, and if I was only going to have a, a five year lifespan, then you know, I didn't really expect to live past thirty, honestly. And、uh, so I thought, oh, I'd go to school to understand what a good life is. In retrospect. You know, I should have gone to Hawaii and learned how to surf, and then you know, died on some big wave. But <laughs>、uh, but、um, <laughs> but anyway, I decided to go to the University of Chicago and do statistical analysis on on people who were happy to find out the answer. But my you know my advisor, which I guess we'll talk about a little bit later, was a man named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who was well known for developing the idea of flow theory. And but he was also at that time one of the few American psychologists who were interested in what it meant to live a good life. And through that, I received a grant to study. And this is in the late 1990s. Successful professionals who were also long-term mindfulness practitioners. Which you know, mindfulness is this another kind of Buddhist、uh, mental and emotional discipline to find freedom, basically. Uh, from your own mind, and in the late 1990s, to find successful professionals who were also long-term mindfulness practitioners was、uh, not very easy because if you, it wasn't so socially acceptable to say, "Hey, I'm I'm a meditator," which you know today is kind of hard to believe since it's kind of now hip. But、um, one of the things that people told me, and I, I found people who were willing to, you know, literally come out of the closet to talk about this. Um, they would so the Fortune 500 CEOs and world famous architects and movie directors and all kinds of very interesting people. All people, incidentally, who use their mind to make a living in some way. I、um, I asked them, "What do you think your life would be like if you didn't have this practice?" And 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 many of them said, "Oh, that's easy. I'd be dead. You know, my life is being pulled in so many directions at once that、uh, if I didn't have this to keep me." Grounded, grounded, centered, insane. I, I think I'd be dead, and、uh, and then I'm listening to them, thinking, "Oh yeah, you'd be dead too, Jeremy." And then, and then we move to the Drucker School, which you mentioned earlier. You know, Peter Drucker is considered to be the founding father of the discipline of management, and you know, he also had the and he was also, as you know, a great fan of Japan, and he has an amazing collection of Japanese art,、uh, a lot of which was inspired by Zen and.、Uh, But he had this idea: you can't manage others unless you manage yourself first. And where, but where do you ever learn how to manage that? And in this culture, education is all about what happens outside you. And there's nothing that we get that's really about how do you manage what happens inside you. And so I ended up offering to teach a class, and that class kind of exploded into my career. And in 2008, which was 17 years after. My diagnosis.、Uh, a friend of mine, who's a physician, was reading off the list of symptoms of kidney failure, and、uh, and as he's going off the list, I I'm checking off every every one of these symptoms, and、wow. I thought, oh, you know, probably the you know the game is up. I I turned five years into seventeen years, and maybe that's a pretty good run. And、uh, so I went back and chatted with my doctor. I said, he said, you basically have three choices. You could go on dialysis. The mortality rate of dialysis patients in this country is twenty percent a year, which isn't a really great uh, statistic. Uh, you could go on a list, right? And in Los Angeles at that time, the the list for you know a, a, a donor, a, a kidney to kind of pop up because some unfortunate person has a car accident or a motorcycle accident was seven to eight years. So if the mortality rate is twenty percent a year and you have to wait eight years, you know that the lines don't intersect really well and. Uh, at the right time or place, and then and then the last choice is well, you could ask people, which I thought, oh, good lord, you know, I'm an I'm an only child, so I 
I do everything by myself. And so uh, then I realized oh, I had to learn how to ask for help if I was going to live. And so I, uh, I ended up writing a letter to basically everyone I knew and, and my students and, and all of that. And at the end of it, uh, I sent that letter out in the beginning of 2008. And around May of 2008, the donor coordinator from Cedar sinai Hospital in Beverly Hills calls me and says, uh, I'm calling to let you know that we're going to turn your turn your donors away now. And uh, and I said, "What are you talking about?" And she goes, "Well, there there's so many of them that uh, and we can't process donors for other patients." And uh, <laughs> and I, I thought, "Well, that's that's interesting. Like, what you know, just curious. Like, how how many of them are there?" And at that point, there were like something like twenty four, and uh, wow. twenty four volunteers. And uh, and then the competitive part of me got on the telephone and ask, well, you know, what's the record? And, uh, and it turns out the old record was seven. So, um, so I thought, oh, you know, that's not bad. And uh, <laughs> uh, 13 of those were my former students, in, including, including the person, Laura Newman, who became my donor, who's a kind of mm-hmm. Amazon warrior of a woman. Wow. And, uh, so that's how that particular part of the story ends. But uh, mm. I will well, say that I, yeah, yeah, go ahead, please. Well, yeah, that please. means that, I mean, the, donating kidney is not like donating your hair or something, right? It's like <laughs> right. part of you. So you must have done something really special to, to it was whoever. A fast, it was a, an, well, <laughs> it was an ama- well, she's an amazing person, uh, first of all. And uh, for weeks afterwards, I, I had these unrelenting fantasies about Aston Martin V8 Vantages, and which I had never thought about ever before in my life outside of a James Bond movie. And, uh, and she, you know, rebuilds and races cars. And, uh, and I called her and I said, Oh, I have these Aston Martin fantasies. And, and I think this is you. <laughs> and uh, she goes, Oh, yeah, yeah, that's me. <laughs> so it's an interesting life. Right. Well, I'm so glad that happened. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people are really grateful that happened. All right, so I interrupted you, but um, yeah, but I, I think uh, I should ask, so what, what exactly you teach at uh, the Draka School of Management? Well, I think that I teach a class called the Executive Mind, and it's a way of really understanding how how do you you know, I, th- I think that as professionals or, you know, just as human beings, we have two games to play. There's a game, the outside game of having to be effective in the world and how to manage the, the forces kind of outside you or at least deal with the forces outside you. And then how do you manage yourself and how do you manage your own you know, emotional reactions or your own attention or your capacity to focus or your own uh, assumptions and expectations about things that un- – unnecessarily limit you or reduce your choices. So what I I think about what I do is I help people create choices for themselves in in ways that they didn't realize they have. And uh, it's all about creating a kind of internal freedom so that you you can be more adaptive to whatever life throws at you. And of course, you know, in this in this particular moment in history with all of these things that are happening at, at this moment, pandemic and, and the race for social justice and all of this climate change, all of that, you know, we need to be more adaptive than ever. And so, so I've been quite busy this year. Mm. Um, right. So the, um, the way to create freedom in someone's mind, uh, so that's based on um, whatever the psychological state called flow. Is that what it is? It starts with it. You know, flow, I think, is we, we probably all have experienced it. I think we know it maybe better by the phrase like being in the zone, you know, where you're so absorbed into things, you kind of, you kind of lose sense of yourself or you lose sense of space and time and you feel like you're being pushed to the limit. You know, you feel truly alive. And, but in order to be able to get into that experience, uh, you need to be able to focus your attention. And to be able to concentrate. That's why I think rock climbers are, you know, so adept at this, right? Because if they can't focus, they, they're going to die. Mm. And so um, there's nothing like mortality to focus your attention in a way. And, but 
you know, you can, you can structure it so that it, it happens in a lot more places. And, uh, but that's really the essence of it. It's like, how do you use your attention and, and what are you giving your attention to? Mm. And so in the flow process, in order to keep it going, you have to expand your ability, right. And, and expand your capacity to mm. take on ever greater challenges. You know, as your skills get better, you need a a bigger challenge to take on in order to have that experience. And so, and I I think, you know, we can talk about this in relationship to Japanese culture, but this is how we grow as a, as a person, right? It's like, you're always expanding your ability and, and it's, and if we're doing it collectively, it's how do we grow as a culture? Mm, Um, Right. So it's, it's really essential, you know? Right, and especially nowadays, I think. <laughs> um, but yep. you know, the you said you you need focus, but it's just a very human thing, right? Because it's it's not like fight or flight, where you really get myopic about your choices are. But the flow is almost the opposite. Yeah, absolutely, and it's it's a place where you know you become so absorbed into something that, uh, you know, it's, it can be exhilarating, right? It's one of, for a lot of people, it's the most uh, enlivened time of their life, you know, it's the most engaged and energized time of their life. Mm. And so how do you bring that into more and more places in your life, you know, so that more of your life is being used in a way that's meaningful or, or at least rewarding, you know, even, even to the point of, you know, using, uh, laundry folding, right? As, as a way of, you know, you make a little game with yourself and how do you fold the laundry in a certain way? Uh, but I feel mm. Japan is actually, as a culture, far more adept at, at doing this. Um, but, um, but we can talk about that later. Yeah. Mm, okay. Um, yeah. Well, you're going to talk about it now, I guess. <laughs> uh, in terms of Japanese culture, I, I yeah. think... Yeah, I think that Japan is really like a flow society in some ways, at least traditionally, you know, because you have this, you have this place that, you know, we tend to think of Japan as a very rich place now, but that that wasn't true for most of Japanese history, right? There are very few resources that people had to develop. And so, you know, if the American mantra is more is better and say like the Texas mantra is is bigger is better. I think the Japanese mantra would be something like deeper is better. And how do you use the resources you have to their to their kind of utmost potential? Like look at origami, right? Folding paper, right? You take one sheet of paper and by using your imagination and your skill, you can make it into anything, right? I, I, to me, origami is so amazing. Mm. But it, you're... The, there's so there's this like cultural predisposition to use everything to its utmost, and because for a long time there wasn't a lot of things or there weren't a lot of things, and so, and I think you can still find that in this culture, which is one of the reasons why I think so many of us are attracted to Japan and and why you know it's so beguiling in some way because because the skill of things is all is being pushed to the to the nth degree, you know, mm. all the time. Right. So I think the, yeah, that's interesting that you said Japan needed to accept what it is because I think officially it's until 1972 or something, you know, that's the economic number. Japan has been a poor country and yeah. that was a turning point only later in the last century. Um, so I think that the concept of Zen that you mm. learned earlier sounds very um, very much in common with the flow because you kind of observe what you have and try to make the most of it internally. So is that the right way to think? Yeah, I think that, well, there's also something about, there's a particular cultural value that I think Japanese have that's a, that is oriented around, fo- that values focused attention, which I think m- must have certainly come from Zen. Right. And because in Zen, you're cultivating high states of concentration, right, which is also, as you said, you know, parallel to the flow experience. And so those high states of concentration are what 
what drive this process of, of both, you know, seeking enlightenment, but also, you know, how do you engage with things to, to create, you know, to create these amazing things that they do, you know, like, you know, my, my, uh, close friend's little brother works, worked for many years for Toyota and was like bragging that they can like cast parts within car parts within like two or three microns that they can measure that, you know? I mean, who else does that? (laughs) (laughs) So um, I don't know if it's useful to be able to do that, but they can do that, right? So uh, uh, in our culture, in, in Western culture, we train thinking. Thinking is the starting point of our education, right? I think, therefore, I am said Descartes. But in Japan, it was different. And in other Asian countries, it was different. The starting place for education was to cultivate focused attention. And and that's a very different way to educate a person. So you have all of these things, you know, like tea ceremony and archery and um, flower arrangement, calligraphy, right? They're all they're all there. And, and when my father was in Japan in the 60s, you know, people weren't considered fully developed until they had mastered one of one of these arts. You know, I can, he was a teacher and, you know, all of his students, he said, could could do something like mm. that. And right. then that yeah. 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 That creates a kind of stability and focus in a person that is an extraordinarily wonderful quality. Right. So that's the, you know, something though, like Sado. Yes. Or judo, or kendo, those those yeah. the way of something, and it doesn't end because until you die, you have to keep studying, and there's <laughs> yes. no end. It's so infinite. Yeah, right. Even if you, after you die, it's still there, and you have to <laughs> maybe when you you know next next to your life, now life after this life, you probably continue pursuing keep, it. Keep going. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so. Anyway, so um, so this is a related question, but in the Japan side video, you said an examined life is not worth living. The unexamined life, yeah. Yeah, that made me think. So could you elaborate on it? Yeah, of course, that was by the famous Japanese uh, philosopher Socrates. And uh, the... I think that gets on something else that you touch upon, which is the, the unexamined life basically is because we're mindless most of the time. And, you know, why do we need to train attention? It's because most of the time we're living on autopilot and we just kind of go through the motions. And so cultivating attention to be able to actually look at yourself is is a way to hedge against mindlessness. And I can see, you know, in some of my some of my students who are older, who are who've been, you know, in some ways very successful by how we ma- measure success in this society. They they ended up with a life that they thought would be great, but it actually turned out not to be that great. And so, and then they, because they kind of went on autopilot. And, you know, one of my students who was the CIO of a multi-billion dollar food company said, you know, I, I'm, I'm in my 50s now and I, I look around and I, I look at my life and I, I said, this isn't actually the one I wanted. But, and yet, you know, he's not, he's not broke. Uh, but he said, you know, I, I really wanted to be a pilot. And when I was in my 20s, and, and yet I got rewarded for doing computers. And I just, I just kept following that, not really thinking about, oh, is this what I wanted? But one thing led to another. And now, you know, 20 years have passed, 25 years have passed. And I, and I look at my life and I, and I'm, and I'm kind of disappointed in myself. Mm-hmm. You know? So um, listeners who have not examined your life, <laughs> probably including myself, <laughs> let's think about it. An examined <laughs> life is not worth living. That is so what, true. What do you want? You know, I don't think that's true of you. But the uh, uh, but you know, what do you want really? And which is a terrifying question to ask in some way. Mm. But I, I have to say that you know the gift of mortality. You know, gift of knowing that you're going to die forces you to ask yourself this question. Like, okay, I know the clock is ticking. And so what am I, what am I going to do? Um, mm. And again, it's all about what are you going to put your attention on? And, I, so you yeah. Yui went to uh, the boot camp to train that mindset from <laughs> 20 years old, I think, or 17 years. 
That was so the gift, yeah, of that right. experience, for sure. Mm. So how do you get into the flow mode by yourself? Well, so it's not that hard, I think. One is that you have to decide some goal. So let's just use, let's use folding t-shirts, okay? So, you know, you make a little game of it. And, you know, is the collar going to be inside or outside? Are you going to fold it in quarters or thirds? And, and, and you have to be able to focus, right? So you can't be interrupted. You have to have some sense of, are you following the rules you set out for yourself? And, and then, and then just do that. It's, it's like, you know, you become much more interactive with your world. Mm. So I, I do this with uh, chicken thighs, actually, because, you know, this is a food oriented household. So I have <laughs> I have perf- I think I have at least in my mind perfected the art of the grilled chicken thigh. And and uh, uh, it has to do actually with one of the videos I saw on the Corin website, <laughs> mm, Corin <laughs> which was about is, how uh, to, yeah, right. the, uh, the sponsor. Japanese <laughs> sponsor. Yes. And, right. you know, how do you. I buy a whole chicken leg from Whole Foods for $3.99 a pound. And that on the Corin website, there's a way of cutting the chicken leg so that, you know, in basically three cuts, you debone the chicken leg. And it is extraordinarily elegant. And then, so I do that. And then then it goes into four days of shiokoji uh, marination. And then after four days, I heat up a yanagisori... Uh, grill pan and three minutes on one side, two minutes on the other. And that gives you the perfect grilled chicken thigh. That is my weekly flow activity. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I, 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 but if you can learn how to debone a chicken thigh in basically four, four cuts, that is an extremely, I'll, I'll buy like way more chicken thighs than we actually need. My wife, gets irritated. <laughs> but just so that I can like cut the chicken thigh up. Right. So, um, it's really fun. <laughs> wow. So now yeah. I see you're in charge yeah. of laundry in your house and you once a week you definitely cook chicken. But <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, well, the, <laughs> I'm the cook of the family, yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. But it's it's really interesting, right? How very that sounds like a daily chore can turn to be something very mindful. It's right. your choice. Yeah. Your decision. Absolutely. The same right. is true of mopping. so so you know like daily so you know in with my students i talk about you know because we're living in los angeles right and so las vegas is a short drive away like your life doesn't and so a lot of my students go to las vegas for the weekend and i said you know stop waiting for vegas right your your life so what are you doing you know if you're going out there on thursday what are you doing you know monday tuesday wednesday right does that or your, your life still counts then Right. And so how do you make all of your life interesting and useful, not just the parts where you're having, you know, exciting things happen? And so I I think that's so don't wait for Vegas. Right. Just use right now. What can you do? What can you do Mm. to make things interesting? Right. Yeah. And uh, so and also I heard you. You like tea ceremony, uh, which is high, highly ritualistic. So, why do you like tea ceremony, and what are why the rituals important to be in flow mode? Yeah, I think that that's another great example of how Japanese culture really refined this process. And you know, as you know, there are like a, a gazillion rules about how to do tea ceremony. You know, uh, properly. You know, you you turn the bowl a certain way and you whisk it a certain way. And and if you if you kind of step back from that and look at it, you can see they're all just rules to to focus attention. And and uh, and when I think you're if you have a very good tea teacher, you know, it, that teacher understands it's really about losing individual awareness, right? That you're you and the Tea ceremony, I think, carried to its most, to its ultimate form, is that there's this dropping of separate consciousness between the host and the guest, and they become one, right? And and that's of course one of the hallmarks of the flow experience is that your individual consciousness goes away, and and I think that's that's one of the amazing things about it. Mm. But I, I think it's easy to get lost in the rules, you know, and then it becomes this kind of boring rote 
exercise. And uh, the danger is always mindlessness. You know, the, so you just blindly follow the rules as opposed to really closely pay attention to what's actually happening and, mm. uh, or actively pay attention to what's really happening. So tea ceremony is, is a, a beautiful way of practicing in some way. You know, daily life is so... I, I made up my own because uh, uh, things just got too busy. But you know, I, I generally tend to drink much every morning, uh, partially because it's good for you. And it also helps you focus attention and all of that. But um, And the, our freezer is stuffed full of like 20 different varieties of much I collected all over. And if you want, if you want a suggestion, I got one. But... Uh, uh, um, Oh, please. <laughs> so I just, uh, uh, well, Irokuen, which is a small maker in Kyoto, makes a fantastic matcha called uh, Ichigo Ichie. I don't even know if it's, if it's available in this country, but uh, it's, it's great. It's 1600 yen and it's, it's one of the best tasting matchas I've, I've ever had. Wow. Uh, so this... the, the, um, so I, you know, so I just made these little rules, like how, where do I put the, where do I put the hot water? Where do you, you know, how do you hold the, the bowl? Um, you can, anybody can do it, right? So, and that's my little morning ritual. Mm. Even I, I think, you know, listeners may not have the matcha, you know, the, all those equipment, but uh, you're making a cup of coffee, like grind, yeah. grinding coffee to make a perfect cup of coffee. That could be... A, the way to absolutely and i and i'm sure like you know we all know somebody who's a coffee maniac and I, I, that's including me we all next to the matcha there's like 20 bags of different coffee i collected around the world <laughs> but uh um the yeah any process like that but i'm sure a diehard coffee person will is experiencing some kind of flow when they're making their uh, when they're making their coffee Mm. Right. So listeners, let's find your any daily activity to go into the flow mode. I will try to find one too. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So uh, now let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll discuss how Jeremy is inspired by the philosophy of his father-in-law who has been making yakitori for decades. So please stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Ball Factory, a Japanese eatery and coffee shop at 95 Montrose Avenue in East Williamsburg. Brooklyn Ball Factory uses the best ingredients to make Japanese comfort food, like their bento boxes featuring meatballs, grilled veggies, Japanese fried chicken, or pork shabu-shabu. Plus, visit Brooklyn Ball Factory's sister restaurants, Momo Sushi Shack, Samurai Papa, Samurai Mama, Bozu and Kitare Shokudo. Learn more at brooklynballfactory.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Aki Kotema, and my guest today is Jeremy Hunter, who is the founding director of the Executive Mind Leadership Institute, Institute at Peter Drager Graduate School of Management. And he has deep connections with Japan spiritually, emotionally, and biologically. So let's talk about your favorite topic, which I think is food. Yes. Um, even beyond <laughs> flow. So I heard that your wife is from Yamanashi Prefecture, and his her father is a chef, the chef owner of uh, the legendary yakitori restaurant. Uh, I forgot the name, sorry. But oh, yeah, Torigen. <laughs> Torigen. Yeah. So he still cooks at the age of 86. And for listeners who are not familiar with the yakitori, it's grilled chicken on skewers, but it takes a lot of craftsmanship to make a great one. So what is his philosophy of yakitori? Well, one day he says to me, uh, he's a very, on his, his outward appearance is very tough. And he says, uh, but inside he's nothing but a teddy bear. And, uh, and he, he does this. He also has mastered another art. He does this very refined kind of uh, calligraphy, which is very rare um, uh, to do. It's not Chinese. They aren't Chinese characters, but a rather indigenous Japanese script. 
and mm, he's, he's also a mass shodo yeah, uh, right. and uh, he's quite also uh, quite skilled at it. And so, in any case, one day he says to me, he says, "So, how many yakitoris do you think I make in a year?" And I thought, oh, I don't know, like thousands, right? Eh, thousands. And then nice. And then he nods his head, yes. And then he's quiet and he stares at me and he goes. How many do you think are perfect? And I thought, okay, my father-in-law is asking me how many of the things he makes every day for the last 51 years are perfect. I'm not going to answer this question. <laughs> so I, uh, so I, I just play dumb. I said, no, I, I don't know. I don't know. How many are perfect? And then he's quiet, you know, this dramatic pause. And then he holds up five fingers. He goes, that's how many. And, uh, wow. and so, of course, he's been doing it for 51 years every day and he only makes five perfect ones he's since downwardly revised his estimate of how many perfect ones he makes to one <laughs> to one a year so 51 so, before so far oh my god but uh, yeah the shop is called Torigeng and it's in the north exit of Kofu station and it, it's kind of uh, uh, anybody who grew up in Kofu can, probably has eaten at, at my father-in-law's restaurant wow. but in any case I, I thought what, so here is this man, right, who even after 51 years says, okay, I only get, out of the thousands I make, I only get perfect one five times. And the other day I was, we were having some work done on our house and uh, our contractor had a new apprentice. And I asked him, so why do you, what do you do? Or like, why, why do you want to become a contractor? Because I, uh, Actually, I think being a contractor is like one of the great, greatest jobs in the world, but uh, uh, it will never be outsourced and you'll never be replaced by a robot. And it's, I, I think, a lot of fun. But I said, so like, why do you want to do this? And it, it turns out he works at a subway shop, right? So, and he says, oh, he goes, I'm sick and tired of making sandwiches every day. I'm making the same sandwich every day. And it just, and at that moment, I remembered my father-in-law. I said, "Oh, you know, here's my father-in-law making exactly the same yakitori skewer every day for 51 years, and he, he would never say like, oh, 'Oh, I'm sick of it.' And like, what's the difference? And and I realized, oh, that part of it is that he, he whether it's conscious or not, or whether he consciously did this or not, but I think this is also something that's particularly Japanese, it's not, I don't say it's uniquely Japanese, but it is particularly Japanese, but he's using this process of making these yakitori as a kind of meditation. You know, they're, they're his way of refining himself. Mm. And I called him one day and I said, so I, I have this theory, you know, like, are you, when, like, how do you know when you're making a good yakitori? Right. And, and he said, um, you know, he said something about the color and the scent and the charcoal and all of that. And then he was quiet and he said, well, I know it's going to be good when my, when my mind and my heart are unified. My mind, heart, and my body are unified, which I thought, okay, so you really are using this as a kind of meditation practice. Mm. And, and I said, uh, and then he said, yes, you figured me out. <laughs> wow. Mm, and he so said, yeah, yeah. So, was so but, he is in the flow mode, right? Yeah, he's absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. And I, I think that that is something that is not uncommon amongst those kind of Japanese shokunin, you know, those craftspeople, because they're, and I think that's part of the interesting cultural heritage of Japan is that that, that focused attention is their superpower. And... And I think it's a way of, uh, it's a kind of spiritual development that you find. You know, you find these people like my father-in-law all over, whether they're making knives or, or lacquerware or something like that. But, but anybody who's ever encountered somebody like that, you know, they have a kind of quality of wisdom or a quality of knowing, you know, that I think comes from this repetitive engagement with this thing. You know, you're setting this frame and then they're, they're performing within that frame. He told me that I didn't, he said, I don't think I started to get good at this until 15 years into it. Then I started mm. to realize, oh, I'm, I'm, and I started to see results that I hadn't seen before. And, uh, and then he went on to say, you know, 
he, how he didn't trust people who did so many different things, <laughs> which is me, <laughs> which is me. But I don't know if he realized that's me because I do so many different things. But anyway, uh, but, you know, he talked about the virtue of like sticking with one thing and like mastering it and going super deep into it, you know, uh, which I think is also a certain kind of Japanese proclivity, you know, but uh, uh, maybe that's true for traditional cultures everywhere. But, but I, that, that stamina, you know, creates a level of skill and subtlety that I think is one way which gives Japan its interesting, unique flavor. And, and in fact, I started to think about, you know, Japan as being until COVID, right? That Japan's tourism rate was really off the charts to the point, you know, where it was uh, creating social problems and that, that there were so many tourists in the country. And, you know, when I was going through college, that certainly wasn't true. And I thought, why is it now that Japan is so attractive to people? And I think part of it is that there's still this very strong commitment to analog culture, which is unique and it has its own downsides. Uh, but, but there still is this very vibrant analog quality. And as the, as the world increasingly becomes more and more digital, right? Like things that you can touch, things that you involve your body, right? Things that engage all your senses, which Japan is so refined you know japan the, japan has this capacity to create these ethereal highly refined material experiences you know that there's something that brings you back into your body you know like i tell my japanese friends look you can't digitize a bathtub right you can't make the hot springs experience a digital one right and because it's your naked body in this hot water um and so there's something about quality of life and quality of experience that I think Japan can offer the world, that, that it has this potential of creating a, a kind of hybrid culture. Like how do, we, how do we merge the digital with the analog in a way that's humane and that, that reminds us we're living in a body, we have to take care of our body, that, that you know, we can't always just be off in these disembodied digital realms. And you know, I, I'm a fan of all of that stuff too. So I don't want to sound like some uh, uh, luddite, but but at the same time, you know, the physical reality is that you know we need to eat, we need to take care of ourselves, we need to live in in the physical world as well. And and I think that's something the inherent nature of well, I I would say the kind of quietly obsessive nature of how. Japanese culture produces beauty in so many different realms of daily life, you know, down to your kid's lunchbox, you know, which is a kind of competition between moms in some mm. way, right? Who can right. make the most elaborate lunchbox? But, you know, the creation of beauty in, in nearly every facet of daily life is something that's really precious right. and, and something I think that more and more of us recognize either consciously or unconsciously, oh, we need that. No, yeah, so the more examples I hear from you, I think it's uh, it goes back to what you said, attention to this present moment. And you want to, it's impossible to perfect it, but it's the mindset you want to perfect it to have the most enriched experience in this moment. So that's kind of, I think, the flow related and Zen mindset maybe. And uh you know, it's just a beautiful thing. So. Yeah, I think, you know, Japan defines quality of life in moments. And so, for example, right, like the heated toilet seat, right? The moment, like anytime, you know, you put your, you put your body, <laughs> your special <laughs> body parts on a cold toilet seat, right? It's very unpleasant. And so, of <laughs> course, the Japanese invent a heated toilet seat, right? So, so like, oh, that moment is so glorious, right? But it's, uh, and there are like a thousand of those moments as you go through your day in Japanese life, that, that quality of life is defined in moments. The, I can remember buying a, some yogurt at the convenience store and then on the, 
on the yogurt packaging, it says, oh, we've designed a special package to make sure the yogurt doesn't stick at the top of the, of the film that, that covers the yogurt, the yogurt <laughs> can, right? So like, I think everybody has had the experience of opening yogurt and seeing the yogurt stuck on the bottom of the, of the film that seals the yogurt container. You think, okay, how do I get that off, right? Somebody in Japan eliminated that moment, right? So you don't mm. have to do it. And, right. and that's so, you know, that's what's so charming about it. And, uh, you know, there are all kinds of those moments so that right. even though you're living in this tiny little cramped house or in this really busy city, you're also at the same time encountering these moments as you go through your day that, some, that make it a little more palatable in some way. Right. Oh, that's perfect. All right. So um, I wish we had uh, two more hours, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we need to wrap up. So what's your plan? Like, what are your plans right now? Well, I think uh, I'm doing a couple new things. So one, I'll be on the faculty of the Inner MBA program created by Sounds True, uh, which is uh, uh, something new starting this year. So I think if you just Google Inner MBA, uh, that's happening. And for myself, I I decided that because uh, you know I got good at living with uncertainty and crisis for 17 years. You know I living from day to day, not knowing if today was day going to be my last day. And so I think I've kind of developed a unique capacity to help people use crisis as a way of, as a growth, as a growth experience. And so I developed a, a webinar called uh, The Storm Makes You Stronger. And if you Google that, I'm sure you can find it. There's actually a version of that I did for the Japan Society uh, where I was also uh, experiencing severe caffeine withdrawal. So I think I was incoherent most of the time. But but anyway, <laughs> the, I, uh, creating an interview series and, you know, that crisis brings about an opportunity to reconsider and reflect on your life in, in a way that, you know, quote unquote, normal times don't. And so I've started uh, a video series that will be on YouTube, like examining, you know, what are the real big picture questions? Like, how do you deal with death and grief and dying? How do you deal with money? Like, what is the nature of love, right? What is the nature of pain? And how do you use that as a growth experience? So like all the big issues of life, we're going to explore. I have the first one finished already. So, uh, mm. but um, yeah. So send me the link and also where can we find your updates? Then I will put them all on the show page. Oh, sure. And then in Japan, let's see, we have, you know, I have uh, my own firm that I operate in Japan. That is a, a organization called Transform. And we have regular online programs there. Uh, the website is transform-your-world.com. And so we'll have some programs coming up, actually. So, And then, of course, the Drucker School, I'm there every semester. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. Great. And uh, I think you have a jeremyhunter.net. Oh, yes. Jeremyhunter.net. Yes. Okay. Right. So That's we have, I mean, I have more questions, but I couldn't finish. So maybe hopefully in the future we can do it again. Um, but thank you for joining us today, Jeremy. Oh, it was my sincere pleasure, Akiko. Thank you. Thank you. So listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanese at heritageradionetwork.org or akikoatema.com. Japanese is a weekly program and always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Um, our engineer today is Amanda Wang, and we'll take a summer break for the rest of the August. So... Uh, we'll see you in September and thank you for listening. I'll see you in a few weeks. Japanese is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content, Subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. 
Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.